Good morning once again. I ask you to take out your Bibles. <clears throat> Turn with me to the book of Numbers. We're going to be in Numbers chapter 1. Numbers is the fourth book in your Bible. If you're not familiar with the way a Bible is laid out, you can take one of those blue Bibles on the pew in front of you and turn to page 128, and it'll be on that page for you. That's where we'll begin, Numbers chapter 1. As you can see, we're going to be in three different places in Numbers this morning, <clears throat> but the theme overall is the same in all three of these places. So I'm going to take you to three different places in the book of Numbers, but we'll see the same thing, uh, or the same theme at least, in all three. Now... As we get into it, one thing I, I, I want to stress to you, and this is something that's true every Sunday morning, not just today, but so often we, we talk about worship as the singing portion of our service. But that's not all worship is. And we are about to worship right now over the Word of God. We are about to see truths that should stir our hearts to worship God. Sometimes as we stand up here to preach, preachers will, will tell the congregation, you know, here's what's true and now here's what you should do, right? But sometimes the application of the sermon is not so much something that you need to go out here and, and do physically in the world. Sometimes the application is worship. That this should lead you to worship. You see the truths of God in Scripture and it leads your heart, it stirs your heart up to worship Him. And so we have worshipped through singing today, yes. We've worshipped through prayer. And now we will worship over the Word. And it's my job to lead you in worship now over God's Word, specifically in the book of Numbers. We're going to see truths today that lead me to worship God because of what I see here. Now, have you ever seen a movie... <clears throat> with one of those twist endings. I used to be fascinated with these when I was younger. Movies with twist endings. You, you didn't see it coming until the very end, and all of a sudden it's a complete twist, and it surprises everybody. I used to absolutely love that. But what's really interesting is when you go back and watch that same movie again, having already known the twist ending, and what do you see? Well, you, you see little hints and clues along the way that the director kind of dropped in as to what's coming. Little foreshadowing that you totally missed the first time, that this is going to be a twist. This is coming in the end. And on the second watch, you see it. You see those little hints. You see those shadows, that foreshadowing of what's to come. Well, the Old Testament is full of things like this. Shadows that point to the reality of Christ and His death and His resurrection. Shadows that point to the gospel. They're all over the Old Testament. And we're going to see some today through a group of people in Numbers called the Levites. Now, I need to give you a little bit of background to understand who these people are, these Levites, because we're going to look at how the Levites point to Christ in the book of Numbers. In the Old Testament, the main people group is the Israelites. This is God's chosen people that He revealed Himself to. It started with Abraham. And if you remember, Abraham had a son by the promise of God with Sarah and named him Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, and one of their names was Jacob. And in Genesis 33, God takes Jacob, and God changes his name to Israel. This is where we get the name Israel, right? God changes Jacob's name to Israel, and Jacob ends up having 12 sons, whom we now call the 12 tribes 
of Israel. And one of those 12 sons was Levi. Levi is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, of Israel. So it's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So as we speak of these people, the Levites, that's who we're talking about. We're talking about all the descendants of Jacob's son, Levi. All of his descendants are Levites, okay? And so as we speak of them, we're going to talk about what God called them to do because God called them specifically to a special purpose. The book of Leviticus, you can hear the root word there, Leviticus goes over much of this, but here in Numbers, the Levites point forward to Christ in three specific ways. They show us the themes of what happened on the cross, themes of what happens when Jesus acts as our Savior, themes of mediation, substitution, and redemption. Mediation, substitution, and redemption. And I want to take them in turn with you. So, first, mediation. Let's look at Numbers chapter 1, starting in verse 47. There we read, But the Levites were not listed along with them, the rest of the Israelites, by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall care, take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. All right, now... Just a little bit of background here in the book of Numbers. Where are we? Well, God's having Moses and Aaron take a census of all the people. We need to know how many fighting men specifically there are, Moses, because you guys are going to go in and you're going to take the land that I promised to Abraham. You're going to take Canaan, the promised land. So we take a census. Right? But in this census, the Levites are exempt. Why? Because they are specifically chosen out of the people not to go to war, but to minister constantly before the Lord for the people. Specifically, they're to minister at the tabernacle. This tabernacle that we just read about was a tent. Remember, the Israelites are in the wilderness. They're dwelling in tents. They've been delivered from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. So now they're dwelling in the wilderness. And they set up tents. That's where they live. But the most important tent is a big one. And it's called the tabernacle. It's the precursor to the temple. The tabernacle was the special place where God's presence dwelt among the people of Israel. Now, notice in verse 51 there that we just read. Notice in verse 51. Any outsider that comes near shall be put to death. And notice also in verse 53. God says the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that... 
there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. Now, what is this talking about? Well, throughout the Bible, we read over and over again about God's holiness. God's holiness. God is holy. He is perfect in righteousness and purity. He is completely set apart from his creation and his creatures. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, we read, Your eyes, talking about God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. This is the God we're talking about. This is the holiness of God. And since people are sinful, since people have sin, the big question is, how can this holy God dwell in the midst of sinful people without wiping them out? How's this going to happen? God wants to dwell among his people, but because of our sin, his purity and his holiness come out in wrath against our sin. The natural response to God's holiness when it encounters sin is to wipe it out. So how can he dwell among the Israelites? Well, part of the answer is he sets certain people apart as mediators. He sets certain people apart as mediators, buffers between him and this sinful group of people. And the Levites are chosen by God to be those mediators, to be the middlemen, to mediate between God and his people. This is the Levites' chosen uh, function in God's people in the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, God lays out this long and ornate ritual long and ornate ritual process that they had to go through, the Levites, to be ordained as priests, to serve as mediators, to be set apart for this work. It included animal sacrifices for sin. It included ceremonial washings with water. It included weird rituals like putting blood on yourself in different places. And there were special clothes and special rules that they were to always observe. Why? Well, it's a dangerous business ministering before the Lord if you're a sinner, it's a dangerous business. And this was God's appointed task of the Levites. So the question is, how does this point to Christ? How do the Levites in their mediation, and their mediatorial role, point to Christ? Well, 1 Timothy 2.5 lets us in on this. 1 Timothy 2.5 in the New Testament, we'll put it on the screen here. It says, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus stands in the gap, so to speak, between us and God. He stands in between us and God as that buffer required because God is so perfectly holy and we are sinful. Jesus is the fulfillment of the priest's system in the Old Testament. He is now the once-for-all mediator between God and human beings. This is why we do not pray to saints like the Catholic Church teaches their members to do. Because Scripture tells us there is one mediator between God and men. There's one, and he is Jesus Christ. He is the once-for-all mediator of God and men. And so we do not continue this priest system into the new covenant, and we do not need other mediators. Jesus is the mediator, and his mediating ability is great enough for all. Romans 8.34 tells us that right now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And what is he doing? He's interceding for you. 
He is at God's right hand interceding for you. Now that doesn't mean Jesus is saying, please God, don't destroy John Davis. It's not not what's happening. Jesus is the representation of the fact that I have been brought to God in a way that I could not have come myself. I can come before God, but only covered by the blood of Jesus. Jesus sits there as one who has died on my behalf, as one who has paid my penalty. He has suffered for my sins. And in that way, I can come to God like a child coming to their parent, only because of the one who sits at his right hand and bears the scars of the punishment that he took for me. Jesus is interceding for me at God's right hand. He is our mediator. When Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You heard about this? The curtain of the temple torn in two from top to bottom miraculously right when Jesus breathed his last. What was happening there? Well, God's presence dwelt behind that curtain. The only person that could ever go back there was the high priest, and he could only go back there one day a year. But when Jesus dies, that curtain's ripped in half from top to bottom, signifying now the common person has access to God because of what happened on the cross. I have access to the Father because of what happened on the cross. Even though He is perfectly holy and righteous and pure, and I am definitely sinful. Even though those two things are true, because of Christ, because He is our mediator, I have access to God. And this causes me, I don't know about you, but it causes me to want to worship God and worship God. Jesus, because without that, I wouldn't have it. I wouldn't have it. Now, not only is there mediation that the Levites show us, but the Levites also represent this theme of substitution. Substitution that we find all throughout Scripture. Turn with me over to Numbers chapter 3, and look with me at verse 12. Numbers chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Now, this is God speaking. And God speaks here and says, Behold, I have taken the Levites... From among the people of Israel, instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel, the Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Do you remember the ten plagues story? The people in Egypt, God uses Moses as his instrument to do these ten plagues, these amazing, miraculous plagues on the people of Egypt so that Pharaoh would finally let God's people go, right? And they go out to the point to where they're at now in the book of Numbers. Well, in those ten plagues, the tenth was the the backbreaker, so to speak, right? The tenth was the, the final straw. And what does God do? God says, I'm going to send my angel of death amongst the land of Egypt. And he's going to go from house to house. And he's going to kill the firstborn son of any family that does not have God's special sign over their doors. What was God's special sign? Well, they were to kill a lamb and smear the blood on their doorpost so that when the angel of death comes, he sees the blood And he passes over that house. And so the Israelites in that way could be exempt from this plague, but the Egyptians, it says, 
wailed all night long because of their firstborn. Their firstborn died that night. And Pharaoh had a firstborn son who died that night. And finally he says, get your people out of here. Go. That night, the Israelites escaped that punishment by spreading blood over their doorposts. But that night, God was doing something else. God was saying, those firstborn that didn't die, they are mine. Those firstborn that didn't die are actually mine. And so when they go out into the wilderness, those firstborn are God's. But God does something merciful and gracious. He says, instead of your firstborn, I'm going to take the Levites as mine. Instead of taking your firstborn son, I'm going to take the Levites, and they're going to serve me as a substitute. Substitution. This theme is found all over the Bible. The faith that should have fallen on the people falls on another instead, a substitute that God provides. Do you remember Abraham about to sacrifice Isaac on the top of the mountain? What happens? God provides a substitute, a ram stuck in the brambles. On that first Passover night in Egypt, the lamb's blood covered over the doors. The lamb died instead of them. And here the Levites are the, first, are the substitute for the firstborn sons of Israel. Notice what it says in verse 12. God took the Levites instead of the firstborn. The Levites are the substitute for the firstborn sons of Israel. Now think about this. Think about what it would have been like to be a mom or a dad in Israel at that point in time. And in the wilderness, every time you bring a sacrifice or an offering to the tabernacle, to the Levites, and you see one of those Levites, every time you see them, you would think, that could have been my son. That should have been my son. My son could have been taken away from me, much like the young boy Samuel, Hannah's young boy, that, that God graciously gave to her after she prayed. Samuel was taken away from her. It's what she honored God with, and Samuel was raised not by his mom and dad. Samuel was raised by the priests. It could have been my son. And yet every time I see that Levite, I'm thankful, I'm gracious to God that my son did not get taken from me, that I can raise my own kid, and he doesn't have to leave and serve God in a particular way like that because God chose the Levites instead. God provided a substitute. Now how does this point to Christ? Well, I hope it's clear, but Christ is our ultimate substitute. Jesus is the ultimate substitute in our place. Listen to what Isaiah says. Isaiah 53, some 700 years before Christ. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 5. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So just as the Israelite parents would have seen the Levites and thought, that should have been my son, we look to Jesus on the cross, and we think, that should have been me. That should have been me. Jesus is dying in your place. Jesus is bearing the punishment that you owed. But the question this morning is, will you 
have his sacrifice applied to you before God? Will you place your faith in Jesus? Will you give up your life to Jesus? Will you trust him and become baptized into his name so that his sacrifice actually applies to you? Because I'm here to tell you there will be millions who do not take that step. And Jesus' sacrifice will not be applied to them and they will pay for their own sins in eternity. Would you pay for your own sins in eternity or would you let Jesus pay for them on the cross? He died in your place. He became a curse, Galatians says. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. By becoming a curse for us. He became what we should have had. He got the punishment that we should have had. He never sinned. He never did one thing wrong. And he died in our place. What are you going to do with that? So there's mediation the Levites show us. The Levites show us substitution. But finally this morning, the Levites show us redemption. They show us redemption. Now look at Numbers 3, starting in verse 45. In verse 45 we read, again the Lord's words, Take the Levites instead of the firstborn from among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine, I am the Lord. And as the redemption price... For the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of the male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. And you shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 garahs. Now what's happening here? Well, there were 273 more firstborn Israelites than there were Levites. Okay, so they're, they're didn't, they didn't have a one-to-one -one substitute. They didn't have an equal number. And so for those 273, instead of God just taking a Levite for that one, they have to do something else. What do they have to do? They have to pay a ransom price. They have to buy those back. They have to buy back their own sons. And every firstborn male going forward would have to be ransomed in the same way. See, God gave the Israelites a choice when it came to their livestock. You know, when, when this plague happened over Egypt, the firstborn of everything died. And so God says, when it comes to your livestock, the firstborn of your, your cattle or your donkeys, your flocks, well, they could either kill it or they could buy it back. They could either sacrifice it to the Lord or they could buy it back. They had a choice. But with their sons, there was no choice. With their sons, there's no choice. You can't kill your son for the Lord. God does not participate in child sacrifice, and so you had to buy it back. You had to buy your son back. And so this redemption theme shows up. You had to redeem them. You had to pay a redemption price. Now, I don't know how many of you experienced this, but when Jennifer and I had our firstborn, who happened to be a son, we didn't have very much money, right? And I remember very vividly the day when we paid off our last hospital bill for having our first son. Okay, I remember this very vividly because I was at work, I was at my first church, and I walked out of the hall and I was like, it's a great day to be alive, isn't it? And they were like, what's going on? I was like, just paid off my son. Like, we own him now, right? It's like a car payment. You know, like, they can't take it back. I don't know. But it, that's what it felt like, right? We were just paying off and paying off, and finally, we paid it off, right? But I'm, t I'm here to tell you right now, I would have paid 10 times that much, right? 
He's my son. I would have paid 10 times that much. However much it costs, it doesn't matter. He's my son. I'll pay whatever it takes. You remember the movie Ransom? Came out in the 90s with Mel Gibson and Rene Russo. You remember that? So the kidnapping story. And when, when this happens, their son is kidnapped and they're held for ransom. And the, the, the kidnappers are contacting them, asking them for a ton of money, right? And the police get involved and the police want to catch the killers, right? Or the, the, the kidnappers. The police want to catch the criminals. That's their goal. But Mel Gibson and his wife are like, we'll pay whatever. We'll pay whatever you want, right? That's my kid. It, my, my kid's worth every dollar I have. This is money. I just take whatever. I just want my kid back. That's all I want, right? This is redemption, ransom, redemption. This is the, the same general word group, right? And so how does this point to Christ? Well, Christ is our redeemer, right? Christ is our ultimate redeemer, and the price he paid, the price he paid for us was the most valuable and precious and rare substance that this, this earth has ever seen. It was his blood. The blood of Jesus is the most valuable, the most rare, the most precious substance this world has ever seen. In 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 18, we read, you were ransomed, ransom. there's that word, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. And so the Israelites had to pay a ransom price, five shekels for their, their firstborn sons to buy them back. But Jesus paid the price of his blood, and he gave it all. Again, that, that verse that we read from Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law. You have been redeemed. We sing, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all to redeem you. Now, here's an interesting question. Who is Jesus paying this price to? Who is he paying the price to for you? Well, it's not Satan. We don't, we don't pay things to Satan. He pays it to God himself. Christ dies to save us from the wrath of God. And you could say, in a sense, you can also say, God himself pays the ultimate price to redeem us from his own wrath. It's the ultimate act of love. And yet, he remains just. Romans chapter 3 talks about this problem that we have. Because God wants to forgive sinners, and yet he has to punish sins. If he's going to remain just, if he's going to remain God, and follow through on his word, he has to punish sins. How can he do both? How can he forgive sinners and punish sins? Because Jesus, Jesus is the answer. And so God just like on the mountain with Abraham and Isaac, God provides his own sacrifice to protect us from his own wrath. God paid the ultimate price to himself. He saved us from his own wrath by giving up what is most precious to him, his only son. How much was God willing to pay for you? He was willing to pay the greatest price this world has ever seen. And so, 
through the Levites. In the book of Numbers, the, the neglected Old Testament book of Numbers, a place where you wouldn't expect to find Christ, you find him vividly in the first few chapters through the Levites, showing us shadows of what's to come, pictures of Jesus' mediation, of Jesus as our ultimate substitute, and as Jesus as our ultimate redeemer. Let's pray. Father, today we praise you for what you have done for us through your Son. We praise you for the price you have paid. We praise you for the solution that you have found to both forgive sinners and punish sin. We praise you for the the shadows that you have given us in our Old Testaments to what would eventually come, the fullness and the reality of Christ's death on the cross and his glorious resurrection three days later. We praise you for that this morning. It is glorious, and you are glorious. It stirs our hearts to worship, and you are worthy of all of it. We praise you. God, I pray that these truths would be driven deep into our hearts. And I pray that if there is any here today who do not personally have the benefits of Christ as their mediator, and Christ as their substitute, and Christ as their redeemer, that they would not walk away from this place without at least talking to someone about how to change that. God, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. We continue to confess our sins to you and yet rejoice because of Christ, because of Jesus' blood shed on our behalf. And so it's only in his name and only by his blood that we come to you and pray. Amen.